This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. everyone. Thanks for joining the conversation today. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. If you've been listening this series, we're in the middle of something we're calling Never Seen. We're considering the ways that movies are capturing and influencing our cultural narratives. And so each episode, we are watching a popular film that either one of us or both of us have never seen. And then we come on here and we hash it all out and get each other's takes and talk about all of the different aspects and angles. Now, we've already discussed Casablanca. We've discussed Mean Girls. We've discussed Singing in the Rain. And those have all been great conversations. But today, we have another installment, a film that I'm very excited to talk about. Hannah, I am so thrilled that we get to talk about one of my favorite all-time films. And I am thrilled to be here with you, just to be watching these movies and talking about them. Because I have to tell you, Erin, I don't think I've watched this many movies in this short period of time in, oh, I don't know, since I was in high school. So it has been so fun to tell my family. I'm sorry, mommy needs the TV. She needs to watch a movie for work. <laughs> we are working. working, working very hard. Yes, I I agree with that. I've watched a lot of movies. It's been so fun and uh, fitting it all in. That's something else. I mean, it's it takes a lot of time to watch these movies, but it's been so great to watch them, take some notes, and then go deep dive on the internet. I have loved that too. But this week we have a special film lined up. And we also have special guests with us. Now, when we started this series, we knew that we had to have on Wade Bearden and Kevin McLenathan because they host the excellent Christ and Pop Culture podcast, Seeing and Believing, which is all about film and TV and everything that goes on on the silver screen. And so Wade and Kevin are with us today. Thanks so much, you guys, for coming on Persuasion to talk with us. Hey, I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, I, I, maybe I should say this is Wade so people can know my voice. And, this is good, and, yes. And they can identify, uh, maybe look a picture of me up online. Uh, no, I'm just mm-hmm. kidding. And then my co-host, <laughs> Ke- Kevin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Kevin's voice. A little bit, my tones are a little bit less dulcet than Wade's are, so that's how you know, you'll know it's me. <laughs> that is so helpful. Oh, Thank man. you. No, I'm, Kevin, blush, I'm blushing over here. Kevin, I'm glad <laughs> that you brought that up because I have felt for a long time that Aaron has a superior po- podcast voice to mine. <laughs> and I've never expressed this because I, I don't feel any jealousy <laughs> or anything, but I do feel like I listen to her talk and I think, oh, she's got it. She's got it. She's got yeah. that soothing, <laughs> oh my inviting, welcoming voice. And that's why she does the opening and the closing because she's bringing everyone in with her very her flawless voice it really is fantastic 
Yeah. That's so kind. Maybe, you know, I have big um, things ahead, like maybe on NPR or something. I'll have to be practicing that. Oh, my goodness. I bet they are just going to be calling me up and I'm going to be doing it. Now, I do love doing this, though, coming on and talking and having these conversations. And Wade and Kevin, you guys get to be here, too. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And it's cool how it worked out that we are both we're watching the film we're talking about today for the very first time. And that was kind of neat awesome. to come on the show and to see a movie I should have seen a long time ago to see it for, you know, initially. And so that I think that's pretty fun. And uh, we're excited to be on. I We always call y'all our sister podcast, if that's okay. Yeah. We didn't even ask permission. It's totally fine. We just, we just did that. So that's the official, y'all, you're our sister podcast. I guess we're I your brother podcast. That's right. You're a brothers. Brothers in podcasting. <laughs> well, I I think this is a great marriage because we whoa, whoa, have whoa, 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 whoa. you guys Aaron, who are, we're brothers and sisters. <laughs> brothers and sisters in in the Lord in podcasting. There's okay. no marriage. This is a good no marriage. No marriage. You know, <laughs> that's a little a weird. A good combo. Go. How about a combo? A good combo. We have all this discussion. Now, Hannah and I typically talk about a wide range of things. And it's only been in this series that we've tackled film. And so we do want to say we know that you guys are the experts here in this case. So that's why we wanted to have you on, because you have so much knowledge about film and the industry. And all. hopefully you have all sorts of inside information, especially on the film we're going to talk about today. So that's that's why we wanted you on here is so that we could pick your brains a bit and we want you to feel free to jump on in to this conversation because really we are looking to you for some good good insight <laughs> well no pressure do you feel pressure <laughs> no pressure okay well let's introduce the film for today the film we have on tap is the breakfast club this film is from 1985 so you know, we're looking at some time back. But this film has been really one that has stood the test of time. It's referenced so much in current pop culture. There are so many TV shows that reference this this film and people still joke about the lines. And so let me tell you a little bit if you've not seen this movie. It's one of my favorites. I have watched this movie more times than I could count. It was really something that was part of my high school and college growing up years where it is just embedded in my psyche. And there's so much from that movie that I still think about today. So here's the deal with The Breakfast Club. There are five high school students, and they are spending a full Saturday in detention at their high school in the library because of their respective infractions, whatever those are. And the film will depict those as it goes. So there's this principal who really isn't a warm and fuzzy kind of guy. He's he's more authoritarian. And he's wanting these students to know that they have done wrong and they need to repent. So they are there for the day. They come from five different cliques and they let me just run through these characters. There's the rebel named John Bender. That character is played by Judd Nelson. Then we have the princess. Her name is Claire, and she's played by Molly Ringwald. Then there's the outcast named Allison. That's Ali Sheedy. Then there's the brain named Brian, and that's Anthony Michael Hall. And then the jock. That's Andrew 
played by Emilio Estevez. So throughout the day, these students are there and they're just supposed to be in the library thinking about an essay and pondering their sins. And as the day progresses, you learn their backstories, they interact, they talk, they fight, they endure this punishment together. The principal comes in and out. There's there's lots of tension, there's conflict. And in the end, it all wraps up because everyone has grown and their characters have progressed. And you see new understanding because of this day spent together in detention. So this is the gist of The Breakfast Club. And there are all kinds of wonderful little scenes and lines that we will hash out as we go. Uh, John, or um, yeah, John Hughes, this is the director. He really is kind of the epitome of um, the the director who um, tapped into this teen mindset with movies like Breakfast Club, 16 Candles, Pretty in Pink, and maybe others. Um, but he really set the stage for these movies that depicted the teenage years and, and all of their angst and their depth. And so that's why this film has really been something that is locked into our cultural narratives. Anything else you guys want to add on to that? I, th- I think it is important to note that one of the reasons why this movie, or maybe one of the reasons why this movie is so well regarded even today is it kind of, in in a way, it almost in- invented the modern teen movie. Like there had been teen movies before The Breakfast Club, but between it and uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, uh, they were kind of the first movies that really depicted normal teenage life, like teenage life where Kids are worried about homework and getting along with their parents and detention rather than something like, I don't know, uh, Rebel Without a Cause or The Outsiders where mm-hmm. they're teens and they're, you know, they act like teens, but they're also embroiled in these gang conflicts and it's a lot more melodramatic. So Hughes kind of had a lot more recognizable teen experience for a lot of viewers. And that's probably one reason why it has stood the test of time the way it has. I think it's important too to to kind of visualize John Hughes's influence during the 80s and the 90s, not only kind of bringing in this adolescent, teenage angst film uh, or subgenre into focus, but he's also responsible for directing Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You mentioned 16 Candles, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, probably my my favorite of the films that he directed uh, you even have uncle buck in weird science oh, yeah. yeah so a lot I of those movies that one. and then he helped to either write or produce other films like the home alone franchise uh, national lampoon's christmas vacation vacation pretty in pink so he's he's pretty influential when it comes to comedy, both in terms of adolescent teenage comedies, but then as his career pro- progressed, he even went further than that. So he he really has his hand on a lot in Hollywood during the 80s and the 90s. Well, let's talk about some gut reactions. I'd love to hear all of your reactions because you three had never seen this movie before, whereas I've watched this more times than really I could ever count. So gut reactions. Let's go around. Lay it on, Hannah. I want to hear what you think. You told me <laughs> I've been once, dying to know. You told me once that this was uh, a movie that you watched at sleepovers growing up. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. So many times and, with and my I friends. I was thinking as I watched it, this is exactly the kind of movie that you would watch at a sleepover when uh, you were with friends and you wanted to feel a little edgy because, like, it's it's right. rated R. Right. Um, 
It is. And I was thinking back to my own experience in high school and my peers, and I was like, yes, they all had watched this. I Even though I had not seen it until just recently, all my friends had watched it, and they would quote it. And I was uh, pretty clueless about what they were referencing, but, you know, kind of came full circle. When I watched it, I was like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> that's oh, what that that's why they called me that, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say, I did not love it. Um, I okay. I found it um, unsettling at a lot of different points. And I don't know if it's because I watched it as an adult. I wonder if my yes. response would be different if I had watched it as a teenager. Because as an adult, mm-hmm. I'm not um, identifying with the teen's so much as feeling motherly toward them. Um, and as a, sure. as oh, yeah. I watched this, I, I just saw all the problematic elements of it. And I had a hard time give, getting over that to get to mm-hmm. the connectedness and the relationships that were formed. Um, and so I think probably my gut response really is affected by being an adult and watching it for the first time because I, I have, you know, adult friends who have seen it like when they were teenagers and now as adults, they still love it. Um, but I don't think they love the movie so much as they love their teenage self watching the movie. <laughs> yes. Yes. Like you remember who you right. were and remember why you were laughing. So I, I think <laughs> sure. it yeah, was really interesting to see it as an adult and be more in a motherly role and not feeling the same level of connectedness. And sure. and so, like I said, all I saw were the problematic elements. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I can take that. All right, you guys, let's hear your gut reactions. So this is obviously like the first time I've watched it. And I actually – Yeah. I, I, I really do like it. I think I think it's a pretty good movie. There's, there's a certain uh, – I guess you could say storyline, a couple of instances that I feel like are not, they don't work today. And yes. I do have a problem yep. with them. And I guess I can get into that a little bit more I later. I agree with that. But mm-hmm. I think for the most part, Hughes provides such empathy to his characters. And I had seen some shots where where Bender was climbing through the attic. And so I went into the movie thinking that it was going to turn into some heist film. So maybe <laughs> maybe they have to steal something from the principal's office or they have to right. you know turn back the clock two hours so they can get out early or right. something. And just kind of struck by the climax of the movie is just those characters sitting around in a circle, like I think all of us probably did at some point in high school, and just talking. Just talking it out. That's yeah. the big moment for the film. And I could probably get, you know, mm-hmm. get into some more details later. But it is something that I liked. And I, you know, this kind of gross aspect of it, just just that one section probably makes me more disappointed because otherwise I think the film's, I think the film's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I'm probably maybe Hugh a little bit closer to to Aaron's perspective more more so than than you other two. It's, I like it. Um, I have some reservations about it. And some of it is related to the more problematic aspects, Hannah, that you and, and Wade uh, talked about. But even more than that, I I feel like one thing that really surprised me, I guess, about The Breakfast Club was that it's 
um, how dialogue heavy I was. It, it It's almost like a play. Yeah. It takes place in that single location, mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's primarily focused on, you know, sketching out these characters pretty finely. Um, it's very dialogue heavy. There's a lot of big speeches that each of these uh teenagers gets the chance to really like sink their teeth into as far as you know big acting moments um but i think when i watch john hughes films i feel like his heart is more in being a a fantasist or a myth maker like you think of something like the big parade scene in ferris bueller's day off or or the parts of this movie even where you know Emilio Estevez is, is dancing along to this music and he slams a door and the glass <laughs> shatters and he you know lets out this howl of it's triumph. Ridiculous. It is a little bit ridiculous, right. but there's there's an energy there um, that Hughes does does really well, whether you buy into the moment or not, and the way that those moments mesh with the quieter, almost theatrical moments with the you know them sitting in a circle and sort of having these these huge emotional highs and lows i'm not sure that those two sensibilities mesh all that well in this movie individually i Mm -hmm. think they they could work but watching it i was i was sort of more on board with parts of it than I was with others. It feels a little bit uneven to me, I guess, if I had to summarize Mm. it. Mm -hmm. I would like to say yes to that. I love the observation about it feeling like a play because at times it very much did. But I too was in this position of waiting for it to turn into this campy movie like I was waiting for it to become the heist I was I had an expectation of of a little more um action but then when the action came um like whether they were out in the hallway running around it felt at odds with the rest of the film so I I think that's spot on um in the sense of just the 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 organic nature of it I did feel like a little it was a little disjointed in spaces one of the things that is concerning for me as adult Aaron now watching, grown-up Aaron now watching this movie. Hannah, you had mentioned this too. There are just some scenarios and situations where you're thinking, oh no, this is so not good. Um, there, There are several scenes that would not fly today. They they are in direct opposition to everything we've been hearing and talking about over the last few years with the Me Too movement. And even Molly Ringwald has written about this and has reflected upon this. And that sort of ability to look at this film and say, okay, this this is fitting for the time and the era, but it doesn't really go for today. And what do you do with that? I'm I that's something that we talk about at Christ and Pop Culture where you see this art piece and you can appreciate it but you also know that it is reflecting a moment in time and what do you do with that when it doesn't fit for today? Do you discard that as a whole? Do you just keep that in mind as you're watching it? Same thing with artists when they are producing things that you like what they produce, and yet they as a person don't really hold up to your standard. These are hard things to deal with. Um, and I think that Breakfast Club fits into that. 
because there are so many scenes that are problematic. One really interesting thing to me about this movie is that in some ways it feels almost ahead of its time. Like there's that one conversation, you know, the big set piece conversation towards the end um, where Claire, Claire's sexual experience kind of comes into play. And that's a big topic of conversation, which the conversation as a whole is kind of squirmy <laughs> watching as a modern viewer, like have, you know, having four teenagers essentially, you know, turn their, their focus on this one girl and sort of critique what her preferred uh, sexual uh, experience might be. But mm-hmm. during that conversation, which is problematic on some level, there is a moment where Ali Sheedy's character, um, Allison, kind of talks about, uh, you know, if you don't want to have sex, then you're a prude. If you do want to have sex, then you're a slut. And like, what's the, like, how you, noting that there's kind of, for at least a girl like Claire, there's no real way to win. You're either one or the other, and both are really looked down upon. That's a really sharp observation, even more so because, you know, back in 1985, I don't know that that was really in the mainstream of the discussion surrounding teenage sexuality. I think nowadays mm-hmm, that's something mm-hmm. that most people are much more comfortable pointing out and naming. But back in the 80s, that was not really so much so. And to have something that sharply observed side by side with the more problematic elements is something that, at least for me when I was watching this, made me feel almost harder on the problematic elements because it seemed like Hughes kind of knows better because he demonstrated he does in this movie. So having the more problematic stuff in there was sort of like, this. you can do better, John Hughes. You've done better even in, in, even in the same scene that we're watching. Yeah, yeah, but he didn't in that And isn't in that, that conversation mm-hmm. kind of fascinating because it sort of resists this easy clean cut resolution because characters are kind of coming to an understanding with each other and then they're pointing the finger at each other and then they're Mm -hmm. all accusing one person and I felt like the tension worked well because we do get to the point where we realize at least Bender's character seems to realize that all this talk of sexuality that he's done especially towards Claire's character and even towards some of the other characters he has labeled them just like individuals have labeled him and i i think that mm-hmm. light bulb moment kind of comes on there and i think that's why the climax of the film works for me because you do get these characters who act like troubled teenagers and they talk like troubled teenagers and mm-hmm. In the end, they seem to realize what's going on. And I I think, I mean, ultimately, when we're talking about some of the more uneasy uh, aspects of this film, it does revolve around Bender's character. And Hughes kind of, in some ways, I think he does this well. So we, we get him sort of attacking Claire's character, and he's bullying Claire's character throughout the film. And Andrew sticks up for her. And as an audience... We're on Andrew's side. We're saying, yes, yeah. you know, thank you for sticking up to her. Mm-hmm. And then we get that scene, the I think the most problematic scene in the film, where Bender is under the table, and Hughes, surprisingly, almost plays it like comedy. You know, he has her, yeah. her legs kind of crunch against his face, and it's like somebody's chewing cereal as a sound effect. Like, it's it's made to make us laugh, and it doesn't mm-hmm. work. And then, of course, at the end where Bender and Claire get together, it's just... To me, the better ending would be Bender understanding and that light bulb coming on and him possibly 
moving towards a change or at least realizing that change could occur. So, yeah, I mm-hmm. think the film is kind of complicated in that way. And in some senses, like Kevin said, it's pretty smart for 1985. And then in another sense, it's John Hughes kind of being the gross out comedy. It's like, hey, look, he like almost touched her inappropriately. Isn't this kind of funny? Which is really hard to digest. And there are some things that we hear of today from um, Molly Ringwald and Ali Sheedy, who who talk about their input into scenes that they either had changed or deleted or or convinced John Hughes to delete because they felt like they were really gratuitous or in it just inappropriate, not needed. And so I do feel like they, for their age and for that time, they did try to corral some of that, but some of it is still there and it is still problematic. So I think that we have to wrestle with that. Um, But oddly enough, even with all of that, this movie still stands out. So what is it about this film that you think has stuck within our cultural narratives? Why why has this one stood the test of of time? So I want to jump in here just real quick. Um, And I think what I want to say can speak to both why it has stood the test of time and um, why it's problematic. For me watching mm-hmm. it, I felt like I was watching this entire treatise on why adults don't have to help and take care of teenagers. Um, I mm. felt like it was a complete abdication uh, and even an excusing of adults. And so the angst and and the way you build empathy with the teenagers is They feel like they have no one they can trust, that they've been abandoned by their parents, um, that they are abused by the authorities in their life, and they feel isolated and alone and misunderstood. And so they find um, empathy with each other, and they kind of build bonds with each other. But to me, that's just this terrible testament to uh, the world they inhabited. And I also, I feel like even the way the film was made with John Hughes, like, you should know better. um, Even that is almost like this excusing of, don't worry, the kids will figure it out. Like, we don't have to take Mm -hmm. care of them because they're smart enough to figure it out. And, you know, I read some of the same things that you mentioned, Erin, about how um, Molly Ringwall would give input on the film and what was appropriate and what shouldn't be appropriate. And that at first that sounds like, oh, great, they were listening to her. But then you think she was a 16-year-old girl. She should not have right, had right. to tell grown men, this right, is inappropriate. Right. Don't do this. <laughs> yeah, how did, it, how did she know and right. they didn't? So like, I'm watching this yeah. film and, you know, as a mother of a 14-year-old going on 15, I'm thinking a lot about how do you launch teenagers into – their adult life like what responsibility do I have as I begin to you know pull back give them more independence Um, and so what I found the most problematic was not the scenes themselves but this this entire aura and I think you see it in the opening quote Um, who is it who it's escaping me David Bowie basically that David Bowie quote the kids Uh know what's going on So let Mm -hmm. them deal with it, you know. And and so I felt like this was, I understand why it's lasting and timeless. And even I was talking with some um, 20-year-olds this last week about it. And they said, yeah, I mean, like, that's how they feel sometimes, that the adults don't get them, that the adults don't um, 
understand. They've already labeled them. They've already dismissed them. And that's a major point of the film. And I think that's why it is timeless is because people feel that way in their teenage years. But I also wondered if that wasn't also used as an excuse to a degree to say, well, we're going to just abdicate what this kind of generational divide doesn't matter that much and they'll figure it out. Well, that's an interesting thing to to think about is, you know, John Hughes, in a lot of ways, like I said, he is kind of a myth maker. He does um, mm-hmm. sort of articulate these these big uh, mind, these these overarching mindsets, I guess, that a lot of people can really relate to. And And the question for me with The Breakfast Club is how much of this is Hughes simply articulating what uh, a lot of teenagers do? honestly do feel about the way adults treat them and the way their lives are generally going, how much of him is just articulating that and how much of it is um, maybe capitulating to it, you know, like it's sort Mm -hmm. of like a chicken and egg situation. Is he just giving voice to what's already there or is he maybe contributing to the sort of entertainment that is consumed by teenagers and then is adopted kind of as, as a pose themselves? That's an interesting thing to wonder about i'm not sure if i have an answer because i'm not really a sociologist about teenagerhood but um it's a question that's fair to ask i think and i think it a lot of it is dependent on the time period too right so this is the 1980s and it's this time of wealth and excess and now today sociologists are looking back on how baby boomers parented generation x and generation Y. And there are these broad themes of abdication that are coming out in sociological research, whether it's abdication of public policy or not planning for the future with economics or even environmental decisions. And so I wonder, too, as I watched it, whether we were seeing a time capsule of sorts um, about in that moment, yes, there was this angst of my parents don't see me, my parents aren't involved in my life, my parents are absent. And one thing Aaron and I kind of talked about was um, the reaction. Today, we have a lot more helicopter parenting. And I don't think you could make the breakfast club now this way. No, no, (laughs) no. I mean, even Ali Sheedy's character where she says, oh, they ignore me. I don't think anyone could even comprehend what that means. Um, But I I can attest that that was the common feeling. Um, I mean, this came out in 85. So I primarily watched this when I was in high school, like, let's say, 87 through 90, and then into college. So I mean, I didn't watch it in the theater. But there was a lot of watching either we rented a VHS, or it was the TNT version with all the bad stuff cut out, which I would recommend if all of you are sensitive out there, and you've not seen it, watch the TNT version if they still are playing it. Um, So we would watch this. And it was like, yes, we can identify with this. Either there's the pressure to be something and we don't care how you feel, but you need to be this person or you feel ignored or you're just a pawn. And so that was very common, the sense of like, oh, the parents are over there and the kids are over here. And as long as we aren't, you know, completely falling apart, you just deal with high school and figure it out. And there wasn't a lot of sharing of the things that are going on in high school during the day with your parents, whereas that's not how it is today. Um, I'm impressed and shocked by how open kids high school kids are with their parents it's it's 
it's mind blowing to me because I I can't even comprehend that. Yeah, I mean, and it it also just depends too on on where you're at because being a youth pastor, you have parents like like you said, wow, you talk to your parents about that. That's incredible. Uh, and then you have <laughs> yeah. you have the direct opposite for for many students. It is fascinating, and I'd like to look at Hughes. Just dig deep into his filmography because he is responsible, at least partially, for for family-centered films. Not necessarily mm-hmm. family-friendly mm-hmm. films, but family-centered. So you think about, like, the Home Alone films. You think about the Vacation films. Abandonment. Uh, Uncle Buck. Yeah, Beethoven. Of familial <laughs> abandonment. I'm getting it now. <laughs> and, and him trying to kind of think through that so it is it is fascinating to view those in light of of yeah the the breakfast club i, I could tell you what what connects with me in in many ways is how most of the characters in this film are not all that great and some are worse than others particularly bender <laughs> and particularly the the principal but the the way that hughes shoots this and the dialogue and and the actors themselves, and he trusts the actors here. We we always empathize with them. Even at Bender's worst, we still get the sense that all of this stems from some sort of abuse. And I think that's mm-hmm. how it how it helps us to kind of work through the film. And one of my like favorite side moments that I connect to, to almost the most with this film, and maybe it's because I'm older, I can relate to the teenage stuff. But it's the principal, and he's a he's he's this jerk. There's there's a couple of scenes where Hughes really kind of twists his character around, and one of them is after he's yelled at Bender and he's given him detention for you know a couple of months, and he walks out of the library and the door closes, and then he just drops his guard and just kind of sighs, and we sense that there's something kind of deeper going on, and then later on in the movie. When he's talking to Carl, we get this idea that he's exerting control over his students because he doesn't feel like he's in control of his life and his future. It has not gone like he's wanted it to go. And I, mm-hmm. I really do appreciate that principal character of, of helping to almost kind of bridge the gap of where we are in adolescence and the disillusionment or the angst that never really actually goes away when we reach adulthood. And then there's that great line, it's like, we all turn into our parents. And it, mm-hmm. it seems to be that there is a little bit maybe deeper understanding there in the sense of, yeah, our parents don't understand us. But then watching it now, you can kind of see, well, I can I can understand how that happens. I can understand as a parent or as an adult, you know, your teenagers look to you like you have it all together. But you're still that teenager, just with you know your body's developed, and, and now you have your own kids. Yes. Ah. So I think that aspect <laughs> of the movie I think works well for Hughes. The empathy, even within that kind of terribleness, within you know the, all these characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I appreciated uh, Principal Vernon as a, a character, although I'm maybe not as sympathetic toward. I, I don't know if I have as sympathetic a read on him as as you do, Wade. Um, I think what's interesting about his character is he's he really is the way he's written, Hughes basically writes him as another high school bully. He's just 30 years older, 
right? Like he, you know, that that big confrontation he has in the in the broom closet with Bender, where he dares Bender to take a swing at him, and you know he knows that Bender won't. He knows that he's got you know Bender cowed, but he does it anyway because he knows that he's the one on top. That's a textbook bully move, and that's the way that Hughes essentially directs uh, the the actor to play that scene is just essentially as a as a swaggering bully who knows that you know he's the one that's on top and mm-hmm. you even see it in in the conversation with Carl the janitor too that in a lot of ways Vernon never really stopped being the teenager who might have gotten detention way back in his day you know like he's he's got that name Richard which Bender throws that uh you know that nickname back at him Dick a lot of times probably because he mm-hmm. knows that that was something that is a soft spot for for Vernon. It's kind of like a soft underbelly and he knows where to stick it in. And that's probably exactly what happened to him as a teenager. I think it's it's interesting how Hughes uses that maybe to suggest that the kids in the breakfast club, you know, they might grow up to be like, like Bender if they don't learn to sort of grow beyond just high school concerns. Mm. And it's almost like the principal is assuming that those kids should want to aspire to be like him, whereas he all makes thirty one thousand dollars like, a year. No, <laughs> like we like here you are, you're this adult guy who's bullying a high school student. Like that's so terrible and low, and and it's not something that they would look up to as something they would want to aspire to be. So that's kind of fascinating, and I think that that does touch on one of my favorite lines from the whole film is when Andrew says, we're all pretty bizarre. Some of us are just better at hiding it. That's all. And I think it's this, the movie is talking so much about how we, we all feel off kilter. We all feel bizarre. And so then we're looking to these labels or these stereotypes to make us feel like we fit, that we belong, that we have something of value. And so whether you are the principal who is moving into that authoritarian bully role, or your bender, the the guy who is the criminal, or or Claire, who's the princess, or whatever. It's like you're moving toward that stereotype so that you can have some cover because you feel so at odds with everybody else. I, I'm actually interested to, to get uh, Aaron, yours and Hannah's take on the way that Allison's character uh, the the change she makes by the end of the film, where she kind of gets that makeover from Claire, and she's you know she gets the athlete at the end, and I I, the, I feel like there's two ways to read that that transformation. One is that she kind of realizes that she doesn't have to be this weirdo outcast; that she too can sort of doesn't have to cling to that and can be seen by others mm-hmm. and appreciated for who she is. The other reading is that it's essentially she must conform to high yeah. school in order to even be seen as fully human by the other characters. It, it didn't quite sit right with me. I kind of felt like I, the way I ended up on it was that felt a little bit more like option B. But I'm really curious to hear, sure. especially your perspectives on what that makeover signifies for So her. I'm going to give you option three. Um Oh, let's hear okay. it. In our first episode, Alyssa Wilkinson um, set a frame for us in watching movies that you're not watching the world as it is. You're watching it the way the director and the producer see the world. And she made the point that so many of these movies are um, shot through a male lens. And so what I saw 
And that transformation is what a man would define as success for a girl, where she's coming into her own. And like, oh, of course she would want this. Of course she would want to Mm -hmm. be attractive. Of course she would want to be seen by the jock. That's when you know you have fully blossomed is when these things happen to you. Um, I think as a female watching it, it did feel... It was that angle of conformity, but it was inform- conformity in a way that I, I think only a man would define success. Um, I was disappointed in the change. Um, I really liked parts of the freedom her character seemed to have um, with her <laughs> dress and the way she just resisted all of these norms. Um, and so I was disappointed in the makeover, but I think it was intended to be look, she's blossomed fully into herself. Um, But that's not actually what would happen if you had blossomed into yourself. Right. I remember really liking that back when I first saw it. I thought, oh, look at her. You know, she's she's put aside all of these other things that are her facade. And now she's basically stripped herself of that. And she feels good enough about herself to be able to just show herself freely. And yet now I think, ah, I kind of liked her better as she was because she did have spunk and personality and she was her own person. Um, There are pieces of it that I think can be good. Like even with um, Andrew, he seemed to appreciate her before that transformation. So I sort of wish they would have just allowed him to like her the way that she was. And similarly with uh, Claire and Bender, I that connection at the end, I didn't get at all, except the no. idea that maybe she was <laughs> she was trying to get back at her parents. I don't know. But I think they allowed Bender to be who he was. He didn't have to change for her. And he should have changed, so, right? <laughs> yeah, like how come he didn't become a sport guy? Like, I don't know why they didn't do that. He didn't have to change. So then I do feel like those messages are at, at odds and they conflict with each other. And I wish it didn't show so strongly that there's a double standard, but boy, it, it does show it right there that the female changes to become attractive and yet the guy who's the rebel can still be the rebel and the girls fall all over him. So that to me is so disappointing. Yeah, and I think that that kind of gets back to my conflicted feelings I talked about uh, towards the beginning of this episode was that there are parts of the Breakfast Club that are just so perceptive and very smart about the way that the teenagers are written and portrayed. And then there are these these turns that Hughes makes in in the way he chooses to resolve some of the storylines to just feel a little out of left field or almost like he's imposing some uh, something onto the characters that they don't necessarily need to be imposed upon them. Mm-hmm. And it, so, so that's the tension between it being very intelligent, perceptive on one hand, and on the other hand, being very artificial that I, I yeah, I, mm-hmm. I just have a lot of trouble with that. <laughs> and then just too, as you're watching the movie, the, the entertainment and and what this film was trying to do, and Kevin, you you mentioned how it kind of went back and forth between uh, smaller, or quieter moments or dialogue heavy, and then you know you get the weed scene. I felt like that was this interesting look at adolescence between you know this back and forth, and I think it's comes it's it's actually pretty funny. I like the scene where Estevez he's. Uh, you know, he gets high and he's just like just running around acting crazy. I think that's really <laughs> funny. Uh, I like I like uh, Brian's character. I think he's pretty great. I do too. And I, 
one of the greatest lines is when they look at his fake ID and they're like, why do you have this? And he says, so I can vote. I, it's just, it's perfect. it's perfect. And so it is, it's like, oh, I do, I really appreciate this movie. But then there are other parts that are like really icky. And I find that more and more as you examine older books and old, older films mm-hmm. and seeing the world from their perspective or looking at their values and saying, ah, eh, maybe that was misguided. But John Hughes is still a pretty talented writer and talented director. And so you do have those moments that I think are really fun and that add to the overall film. And then it goes back to, well, if you would have ended it differently, you could have landed the movie much better than you did. Well, this kind of reminds me of something we talked about with um, Gina Delfonso in our last episode. We we talked about Singing in the Rain and how so much of La La Land was kind of pulled from this this sense of Singing in the Rain. Mm-hmm. But I was saying that Singing in the Rain is so happy and so fitting for that time frame, whereas La La Land is the musical, uh, the Singing in the Rain version that we could handle in 2018 <laughs> because it ended a little bit on the sour note. And I think that teen movies today don't need to end up all neat and tidy like The Breakfast Club did. And so I wonder if made today, it wouldn't have to be that, oh, we've got romantic couples pairing off and everybody's walking off into the sunset and they've achieved something. So maybe it's just what they could handle for that era. Who knows? Is it just me or is it weird that these characters are all making out in front of their parents? And their parents are just chilling in their cars. <laughs> yeah, their parents are just like sitting yeah. in the car, like, I'll just wait for you guys to finish necking, and then we can you know, go home and have dinner. Parents <laughs> have abdicated all responsibility. That's right. And no oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Well, there's so much more here. We could go on and on, which this has been so fun. Um, I would love to keep talking with you, but we need to to wind it down for today. Um, Kevin and Wade, thank you so much for coming on Persuasion and talking with us about this film. This has been just really delightful for me. Thank you. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really good. I'm, I'm glad here. we had the, the crossover finally after all this yeah. time. <laughs> That's right. This has been great. Well, we will link up the other shows in this series for you all in the um, show notes so you can catch up if you haven't been able to. And But we would also love to have all of you listeners out there join the conversation. So, Hannah, do we have a question of the day? I do. Um, which of the characters would you have been in high school? Now, if you haven't seen... Um, Breakfast Club, you can still join in the conversation. Uh, We have the rebel, the princess, or the popular girl, the brain, the jock, and the outcast. So come on out to Twitter. We're at Persuasion CAPC. And let us know which character you would have been um, in high school if you were in the Breakfast Club. And of course, you can come over to the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum, and we'll have a thread running there where you can jump in and give us all your memories and opinions and feelings about the Breakfast Club. Um, And you can become a member for just $5 a month and support um, the work we do here at Persuasion, the work that Wade and Kevin do at Seeing and Believing, and a whole host of other projects um, that we get up to at Christ and Pop Culture. Thanks so much to Jonathan Clausen. He produces Seeing and Believing and Persuasion and any other podcast at Christ and Pop Culture. We so appreciate all of his work. And we would love all of you to go over to iTunes, give us your ratings and reviews, make sure you listen to some Seeing and believing you will love listening to wade and kevin talk about the latest in films and we do thank all of you for listening to persuasion and we will catch you next time 
You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.